Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you today and we are so honored to bring our needs before you. We recognize that there is nothing that is beyond you and there is nothing that surprises you. And today we simply ask that you would move in our midst. Thank you for your faithfulness, the way you've always provided for us. During times of brokenness, you are there working on our behalf and you are meeting needs even before we even realize that they're there often. Father, thank you for your love for us. The fact that you love us so much that you would not be content leaving us in sin, but rather you made a way for all of us to be redeemed by sending your son Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for us. And while we celebrated not only the crucifixion last week, we also thank you for the resurrection. For we have the promise of eternal life and we have a hope that there is much more to look forward to than what we experience today. Father, I pray that you be with those who are hurting. I pray that you would bring healing. I pray that you would touch those who right now are uh, filled with fear as they deal with the effects of this coronavirus, maybe issues with not being able to work, maybe things going on within their own family lives. And I just pray that in the midst of all of our brokenness and whatever shape or form it takes, I pray that you would use it for good. I pray that you would cause us to uh, lean into you, to find our strength and encouragement from you and you alone. And I pray that as you grant that, that you would use our difficult times to make us more like you. Father, I do pray that if there be one that is participating today that does not know you, that maybe today would be the day that they would surrender their lives to you and that you would extend your grace and that you would give them a hope and a promise that there is something greater to look forward to. Lord, I pray today that you would forgive us of all sin and that you would open up our eyes to our need for you. And I pray that you would change us. Do whatever it takes to bring us into a right relationship with you. Again, I thank you for your grace, and we just ask that you would speak to us during this time today. I pray that it would be beneficial to all who participate. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I do want to take a moment. We're going to do something we wouldn't normally do. Uh, I try every once in a while just to throw in a video just to give you a glimpse of some of the things that uh, maybe I'm going to be talking about later in the service. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, just to tune in for a second. Uh, it's less than a minute, but I got a video that I want you to watch this morning. It's so easy to get caught up in all the rushing and trying and the endless daily details. Washing the dirty dishes, throwing another load of laundry into the dryer, another email, another notification, as we rush to make our morning commute. What if we break away from the mundane distractions of daily life and make time to refocus on what really matters? To take a step back and ask, why are we doing this? What is holding us back? What if our gifts could be used for a higher purpose, for something beyond ourselves? Okay, so my sermon series has been laid out now for months, and I had no idea exactly how appropriate this would be when I scheduled this series. The video clip that has just been played depicted a world that is very different from what we face today. 
It was an image of people hustling and bustling through their busy lives. It was what we would call normal. That is, until somebody suddenly hit the brakes on everything. And now we're not really sure uh, we even know what normal looks like. Over the last seven days, we've been battling this coronavirus lockdown. We've celebrated Easter with empty churches. And in this particular area, we were hammered by an F3 tornado that did significant damage. I really didn't see any of these things happening earlier in the year. What all of this has revealed is that regardless of how hard you fight against it, change happens. I wonder, have you ever tried to fight against change? Most of us have at some point or another. Change can be an exhilarating thing or a horrifying thing. I think it's probably the uncertainty that often makes it so scary. We know what to expect in the routine. We've been here before. There's certainly comfort in the familiar. But of course, there is another side to change as well. Over nearly 26 years of ministry, I have experienced three pastoral changes. My personal plan is to never have to go through that again. But I can remember each one of those transitions vividly. In each case, there was a sense of fear and loss. There were people that we had invested in, that we loved, that we were leaving behind. They knew me and I knew them. I'm one of the fortunate ones who has never really had a bad pastoral experience. When the time came for me to leave, there was always a sense of loss. As I loved the people and I've been blessed to serve these individuals, and I feel like they loved me as well. But each time of transition also brought a sense of excitement. What would the next ministry experience look like? What opportunities would be present in this new setting as opposed to where I have been in my previous setting? What I found in all of these is that God has been faithful through every change. That doesn't mean that I've always gotten everything that I wanted, but it does mean that regardless of what I've gotten, God's presence and his character remained the same for me. We see this very clearly in today's passage. We're in Acts chapter 15 today, and I'm going to read several of the verses, but I'm not going to read all 35 of the verses that I'm using for my primary text. But I do encourage you to read the rest on your own, verses 1 through 35, while I highlight bits and pieces of the passage. Remember, Acts chapter 15, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 35. That being said, I do want to start by reading the first nine verses to you. And the first thing that I want you to see today is what I've already mentioned. God never changes, but everything else does. You cannot keep it from happening. Look at it with me, beginning in verse 1. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Unless you are circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. 
the church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. I want you to imagine for a moment the rapid change that is taking place within the New Testament church. The church is still in its infancy. This is a faith that originates out of Judaism. In fact, it is likely that the early church never set out to develop a new religion. Instead, they likely saw Christianity as the next natural step, building on their historic faith. The coming of the Messiah was what the Jews had anticipated and sought for many generations. Thus, the New Testament believers likely didn't initially see themselves as converts to Christianity, but rather those whose faith was completed in Christ. In other words, many of the earliest Christians would have still seen themselves as Jews, but rather also as completed Jews. This idea of change within the New Testament church is perhaps best depicted in the story of Nicodemus, a faithful Jew, as recorded in the Gospel of John. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is a respected religious leader among the Jews. And we are first introduced to him in John chapter 3, but we see a progression throughout the Gospel of John. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus pays a visit to Jesus late one night. It would seem that he wanted to ask some questions of Jesus, but he didn't want everyone else to know of his pursuits. He kind of wants to know about Jesus, but I don't know if I'm ready to talk about this in public, so let me go at night, basically where no one will know that I came. He was the one who asked the question, how can a man be born again? Then we are reintroduced to him in John chapter 7. The Pharisees are challenging Jesus, and Jesus even calls them out because they are already planning to have Jesus killed. And as they seek Jesus' arrest, in John chapter 7, verses 45 through 52, Nicodemus subtly defends Jesus. He reminds them of the law. He asks them a question, is it right for us to condemn this man without first hearing from this man? And then finally, in John chapter 19, verses 39 through 40, Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, see to the burial of Jesus. 
even having his body anointed with various perfumes and oils. Such an act would have come at a great cost, not just financial cost as they used their own perfumes and oils, but rather it would have come come at a great cost because they would have been perceived as sympathizers of this rebellious man, Jesus. But I want you to notice what has happened in Nicodemus's life. He has gone through a tremendous change. He was counted among those who opposed Christ. He was a Pharisee. Then he became curious of Christ. Then he defended Christ. And finally, he honors Christ. But such drastic change would not have been easy. Consider the fact that Nicodemus had been taught all of his life that the Messiah would come, but Jesus certainly didn't fit the image that most Pharisees expected to see in the Messiah. And as he began to change, he likely felt like he was a solitary man on an island. Yet that island experience wouldn't last long. Remember that at the burial of Jesus, we find both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea together taking care of Jesus' body. And then by by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, we see a reference to the Pharisees who believed, as if there were a large group of them that have now become a part of this Christian faith. It would seem that one person's change opened up the door for change in many people's lives. And the beauty in this is that God welcomed the Pharisees in, as it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Of course, bringing the Pharisees in to this newfound faith does bring some complications with it. Seeing Christianity as an extension of Judaism, what do you do with all the Gentiles that are now coming to Christ? We know how Judaism would have handled this. If you want to be a Jew, then you need to be circumcised. You need to be like us. You need to go through the same things that we go through. Shouldn't new Christians also be required to do the same thing? This becomes a significant issue that the church must wrestle with in its infancy. We see Barnabas and Paul on one side declaring that the Spirit has already been given to these new believers, and therefore no circumcision seems to be required. And on the other side, you find the Pharisees. Understand that what takes place here is significant. The early church sides with Barnabas and Paul, yet they still declare that there are certain standards that cannot be compromised on. And this would have been very important to the Pharisees. You see, they were all about the law and making sure that they, the people lived up to a standard that would honor God. In essence, what they are saying is that the church may not look like it used to look. We may not do things the exact same way that we've done them before. But God is still good. And that means that there are certain standards that must be kept that reflect his goodness and character. This has been a battle which the church as a whole has been fighting for many, many years. Many of us grew up in a church where all of our music was basically the same. It's what we would call traditional. 
But for several decades now, new music has entered into the Sunday morning service. But of course, it's more than just music. There are some things that have been added to our services, and there are other things that have been removed over the years. And truthfully, I like some of the new stuff, but I also miss some of the old stuff too. What I've discovered is that although change has happened, God has remained faithful. We may do things differently, but God remains the same. I'm going to go off on a tangent for a moment, but it's not really a tangent because I'll tie it back in by the end of the message today. This is really important stuff. It's a necessary tangent. While I have embraced the need for change, I also realize that there is one thing that should never, ever change. When a pastor stands in the pulpit, our greatest job is to proclaim the word of God. Not our opinions or merely good moral teaching. There's nothing wrong with telling people to be good people. But if we cannot point them to Jesus Christ in the process, we are not doing the job that we have been called to do. Our job is to point people to God himself through the word of God, which reveals the heart of God. Unfortunately, there are well-respected pastors that no longer do that. I listened to a sermon this week from one such pastor, and I will not mention his name. And I kept waiting for him to share the scripture. He did finally read a single verse at the very end of his message, but it was nothing more than something extra to add to his personal thoughts that he had shared over the previous half hour plus. Listen to me. The word of God must be the foundation of the church today and tomorrow, just as it was in the past. That being said, what we have always done will never accomplish what we need done today and in the future. The Wesleyan Church was formed when two groups merged together in 1968. One was formerly called the Wesleyan Methodists, a group that broke off from the Methodist Church over the issue of slavery. Apparently, the Methodists weren't yet ready to call slavery evil, a position that they obviously would later change. But this social injustice led to a split that was never truly reconciled. The other group was called the Pilgrim Holiness Church. This group was primarily birthed out of camp meeting revivals. A minister would show up in a small town and set up a tent where revival services would be held for weeks at a time. Eventually, the minister would move on to the next town, leaving many who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. As a result, churches would form out of these tent meeting revivals. Man, as much as I would love the fruit of such tent meeting revivals, we must realize that the world we live in today is not the same as it was when the Pilgrim Holiness Church was being formed. Instead, if we're going to reach a new generation for Christ, then we will need to try different things even if sometimes that is an uncomfortable thing for us. I remember a gentleman in our church in Colorado. He was well into his 80s, but he had a heart for people coming to Christ, especially his family. I remember leading a class on how to share your faith, and Wayne Carver, then 86 years of age, showed up to learn how to share his faith better. 
When asked why he was there, he said, I have family members that do not yet know Jesus. I remember being a part of a conversation with him one day. And there were several others who were present. And one individual began to politely complain about some of the changes that had taken place in the ministry of the church. The individual reminisced about the good old days and then questioned why we needed to change the way things used to be. And Wayne stepped up. He said, if doing something different opens the door for someone to come and hear the gospel, then I'm all for it. And then he added, maybe my grandson will be that one. What a beautiful understanding of why change has to take place within the church. By the way, this coronavirus has really demonstrated this clearly for us. There was a time that the church saw the internet as the devil's tool. We warned people to stay away from it because there were so many pitfalls that were there. Yet today, we are presenting the gospel message every Sunday through this very same tool. Thank God for change. I asked earlier, what do you do with all the Gentiles that are coming to Christ? The fact is that although God's word had always pointed to a time when Jews and Gentiles would all worship together, many of the Jews didn't really consider this a possibility. But listen to the words of Amos chapter 9 for a minute. Verse 11 through 12, it says, In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. A couple of thoughts within that. First of all, we're talking about David's fallen shelter. We're talking about the place where God would meet with God's people, talking about the Jewish people. He says, I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. But what I find so inviting in this passage is he is not simply rebuilding so that the Jews can have this, but there is a reference to all the nations that bear my name. And in, in mentioning all the nations, we're no longer just talking about the nation of Israel, but rather we are talking about the Gentiles. Know that it was always God's plan to rescue the Gentiles from sin and death. But listen to this, new people do require new expectations. When I went to Burlington, North Carolina, I had a great group of kids that I got to work with. They were amazing. Uh, the previous youth pastor had done a fantastic job of developing leadership within the youth group, and I cannot ask for a better situation to have started ministry in. While we were there, though, God opened up the door for us to reach some different people. Uh, this was a white church in a predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhood. And what happened is over the years, we began to shift our outreach program. Instead of just trying to reach people that look just like us, we began to reach whoever was there. And what happened was we saw significant growth 
Actually, we ran a bus ministry that picked up often 40 or so kids every Wednesday night or Sunday night, depending on whatever night we were meeting. Um, I began to recognize that the expectations were different for those who had been raised in the church as opposed to those who we were picking up through our bus ministry. Uh, In many cases, I think I could have simply shown up and just loved on the kids and they would have been okay with that. Now, I wouldn't have been okay with that because I wanted to also point them to Jesus Christ. I didn't want to just tell them I love them. I wanted to be able to point them to why I love them so much because they were created in God's image. But the expectation was very different. Those who had been raised in the church, they expected a set service with a time of Bible study and prayer, uh, maybe a couple of songs that we would do, and, and, and everything had to be very structured. It had to fit what our expectations were from the past. Well, what do you do when you've got people that this is brand new to them? They don't know what the expectations were in the past. They just know that someone loved them and they cared enough to go pick them up on Sunday night and, and Wednesday night and Sunday morning, whenever it was. What happens is the expectations do change based on new people coming in. I wonder today what the rest of the world expects from the church. I think sometimes we have a certain expectation. We know what we want Sunday morning to look like. We know that Sunday morning will be probably the biggest point of our week. But the reality is the people on the outside, sometimes they're just looking for a place that will love them and in the process show them what Christ is really about. Maybe it's time for us to change our outlook on what church is about. I do want us to have great services on Sunday morning. I want it to be a time of celebration and worship. I want it to be a time for people to draw near to God. But maybe we need to stop expecting that it'll always be the way it was. One of the things that I have come to the realization of in recent weeks, I don't know that life will ever return to what we would call normal. Things are going to be different. It's just the way it works. Things have changed because of this virus, but God is faithful. Let me close with one last thing, and it's something that I've already briefly addressed. The message remains, but the method changes. We may use different tools to communicate the message, but the message must always remain the same. The message that remains the same is this. First of all, God loves you more than life itself. The fact that Jesus Christ, who was involved in the act of creation and was a part of everything that existed, the one who never would have had to experience death, he chose to experience death, to make a way for us to have communion and fellowship with God. That shows you incredible love. God's love for you is greater than you ever could have imagined. God has very high expectations for you. I just told you how much he loves you. Well, I love my kids, and because I love my kids, there are things that I expect of them. I expect them to succeed. I expect them to do well. I expect them to live in such a way that they bring honor to the family name. Well, God expects the same thing. He has very high expectations for you and for me. Along those lines, this was not one of my original points, but I woke up this morning and I realized 
It has never been about me, but it has always been about him. And I'm talking about God. We're talking about the expectations that he has for us. So often we have lived for our own satisfaction, for our own pleasure. We have lived for our own desires, the things that we have longed to to receive. But truthfully, life has never been about me. This has always been his story. I just happen to be an extra in the story. And it is a privilege. God desires to involve me in his story. Often the presence of sin is caused because of the fact that we have made the story about us rather than about him. God desires us to represent him well in his story. The third thing that I want you to see as a part of our message, first, God loves you more than life itself. Second, God has very high expectations for you. The third thing is this, one day he will come back for all of us. We have a hope and we have a promise and there is something much greater that awaits us. There is coming a day where we will no longer have to deal with sickness, death, pain. We'll never have to deal with financial worries. We'll never have to deal with temptation. All of those things will be a thing of the past. But the fourth thing is that when that day comes, you must be ready. That is the message of the church. God loves you more than life itself. God has very high expectations for you. You are not the centerpiece of those first two components. God loves. That's what matters. God has high expectations. That's what matters. One day he will come back. That's what matters. But we come into play here at the end. We must be ready. If you are not ready to meet Christ, then today is the day to get ready. No one has promised tomorrow. Let's make sure that we're ready today. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, we confess that we have fallen short of your expectations on many, many occasions. Your word tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are included in that all. I pray today for your forgiveness. I pray that you would allow us to experience your grace personally today. May we know how much you love us simply by what you have already done to save us. Father, I pray today that you would help us to live up to your expectations. We will for sure still need grace. But I pray today that you would help us to live in such a way that the rest of the world will see within us someone who is being transformed into your likeness. In our passage today, it talked about individuals being filled with the Holy Spirit as evidence that they had been saved, that they had been redeemed, that they had been accepted by you. But I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might be able to live in such a way that the world will see you and not us. We look forward to the day that you come back for us. May we be ready when that day comes. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
It is a privilege to be able to share with you today. And again, our hope is that God would use this to simply um, help you during this time. Maybe this will be an opportunity for you to experience God more intimately than you ever have before. Thank you again for this time of being with us. And um, may the Lord bless you as you continue this journey.